Good morning, and the conversation begins here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. Coronavirus, we can't seem to get away from it. It's in the news, it's in our lives, and it's likely to be there for the foreseeable future. I read that the U.S. government is talking about an 18-month siege, 18 months of staying home, the economy going to heck in a handbasket, and a whole lot more. What's it all mean? Is the other world of technology and electronic media helping or hurting? This is going to be one of the many things we ask my next guest. Coming up for conversation, Anna P. Murray, who along with her husband Chris Muscovides is founder of eMedia, an electronic media company mushing email and technology. All this and more coming up here on 94WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. More in just a bit. And just say play Conversation with Peter Solomon here on 94WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Anna Murray, one of the founders of eMedia, along with her husband, Chris, a, mo- a mixture of media and technology. Good morning, Anna Murray. Good morning, Peter. How are you this morning? I'm fine. There's so much to say about coronavirus in the media, isn't there? There is more than you can consume at the moment. I have to agree. I mean, I turn on my computer and start streaming just television, let alone anything else. And it's coronavirus, 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 coronavirus. Do you think it helps or hurts? Well, you know, I, I think that we, we do need the information. I think we are at a point right now in the country where people are going through phases of understanding and acceptance, and there's panic along the way, and there's uh, really upsetting emotions along the way. But the, what we're learning from other countries is that people really need to get the point. I mean, we, we really we don't have a lot of data now in the United States. We didn't have testing early enough to have data. So, you know what technology and computers really need is data in order to be able to do their job. So, so I think people are, are making, up, making it up as they go along a little bit, and you see some people really locking down and, and, and getting very fearful, and other people, you know, I was in the park uh, walking my dog a couple of days ago, and there were, you know, five guys playing basketball. So, but we, what we learn from other countries is, unfortunately, you know, we don't want to be alarmist. I think your question is saying, you know, are we hurting? Are we being alarmist? Are we causing, well, you know, we're not causing panic in the streets. Maybe we should a little bit more. Hmm. Why do you think maybe we should a little more? Well, the, the lessons that we're learning from, from Europe now, which are ahead of us in terms of time, you know, I mean, you look at Europe and what, what's happening in Italy, and you can say, when is that going to arrive in New York? I'm sitting right here in Manhattan. You're in Philadelphia. Well, you know, a week, 10 days, we're going to be facing similar things. And the only way around that is for people to take the restrictions seriously early on. 
the countries that are doing the best, which were, you know, Japan, Korea, South Korea, Taiwan, uh, are the ones, Singapore, mm-hmm. even, even China. You know, China did actually, if you look at the data, China flattened the curve. They didn't do it quickly enough, for sure, and they didn't tell the world, for sure. Those were big mistakes that humanity will pay for for a long time. But they did it, what they did right were severe restrictive measures and extensive testing early on. And in the, in the and there's different cultural issues at play. These countries, you know, I'm not going to shake my finger too much because that doesn't, first of all, that doesn't do anything. But, but also you're looking at countries that had experience with SARS. And so they learned early how to do it. And, and the society itself, you know, these, these, these messages, this kind of, you know, this kind of feeling in your DNA of what to do when something happens, the Asian countries who are experiencing um, the outbreak of COVID-19 had a fundamental understanding. So here, we, uh, we don't know. We have no idea. No one has ever experienced this before. No one's alive from the 1918 pandemic. So the message, and the only thing that works is extensive testing and, and, and really draconian measures to limit people's movement. They didn't do that enough in Italy, and they didn't do it early enough, and now they're, they are paying the price. So, so that's what I, I little, you know, uh, a number of uh, podcasts and shows that I'm listening to with experts that, you know, from epidemiology are saying that, you know, we, fear is not great if it paralyzes you and puts you in a, a mental state that, that you, where you can't operate. So that's bad. But it, it, it is good if you are learning not to touch the stove because it's hot. Because you shouldn't touch a hot stove. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and right now, unfortunately, the equivalent of that is you shouldn't be visiting grandma because it's the equivalent of a life-threatening hot stove. But things like that create problems as much as they solve them, don't they? Don't visit grandma. Grandma gets lonely. Grandma thinks about putting her head in the oven. Well, <laughs> we don't want grandma to do that, Peter, for sure. We don't. Uh, but right now, you know, our, our terrific governors uh, all around the region are telling us the truth, which is that people are the vectors that spread the virus. And you are, we don't know who is infected. We can guess, but we don't know. And here's the thing. You are contagious with COVID-19 for about a week. They're not really sure. It could be 10 days before you yourself even show symptoms. Mm. The highly contagious virus, it's uh, spread through, you know, contact greater uh, smaller than six feet so if you if you want grandma to be um not lonely you can go in a mask and gloves if you have them and stay six feet away that'll work you can we we just had our first uh, uh virtual cocktail hour with friends of us on zoom and you know it's funny i thought to myself well this is going to not feel so great and well, i don't want to do that and and my, my, my dear friend Charlene insisted, and so we did. 
and you know it was it was really a very pleasant experience. We laughed, we saw each other through the video camera those that's a great way where technology is really uh innate it's it's right there for us to use during this uh, really terrible time that we're all struggling to adapt to. It's right there for us to use to have you know virtual cocktail hour with your friends. And I'm here to tell you, I did it for the first time last night, and it was really, uh, it was really quite nice. It felt like we were together. So that's a that's a thing that your listeners, everyone out there who's who's resisting maybe staying at home, which is what they need to do, uh, you know, launch your. Hello. Uh, go ahead and launch Zoom and have a have a great cocktail hour. Absolutely. Well, in terms of married couples, because I know you and Chris are together. Um, I married you for better or for worse, not for 24 hours a day. Well, you know, is the, you know, if you're married, you're in a household with someone, you, you really have to, uh, you're together, you know, that's it. That there, that's your unit there. The two of you are in it. If you have kids, you're all in a family together. So for, for our, you know, period of time where we're doing social distancing and the, the government in different, uh, states is, is ordering us to stay at home. That's what you have in your household, and you stay together. You know, obviously, it's you can't sleep in the same bed six feet apart, um, but but you control the lim- You are limiting quite significantly the number of people that you come in contact with. This is true. All right, back to media. Media tells us things that I find very confusing. It's an old folks who are going to die. It's young people who are dying. The Queen of England left London is hunkering down in Windsor Castle. It confuses people. I think that you are absolutely right. It, the lack of information and the conflicting information is one of the problems we are grappling with right now. So why is that? The virus that we're experiencing right now, COVID-19, they call it a novel virus for a reason, which it means it's utterly new. It, uh, people have no immunity to it. It jumped from animals into humans, and we don't know what we're dealing with. So the media has, which the media does, report fast and furious the numbers out of China and what was happening in China, which appeared, it appeared that older people were contracting the virus more than younger people, and it appeared that they were dying in larger numbers than younger people. Now, again, what we need for, to, make, to make people's lives better, what we need is science, and science relies on data. And we are seeing things change depending on the country that you're in. So Italy has had a different experience from China. In Italy, we're seeing more young people being more severely affected by the virus. So the media is reporting that. Now in New York, we see that 40% of all hospitalizations happening in New York are happening in people under 50. So what does it mean? And is the media being irresponsible? I'm not sure I, I would go so far as to say that in, in that 
the media is reporting information as it becomes available. I think what, what people are not doing enough of is saying that the situation is fluid and is changing, and we honestly won't know all of the information and be able to say, aha, this is why this happened in China. This is why this happened in Italy. This is why it looked different in the United States. This is why it looked different in New York than Seattle. We're not going to know that except as we look back. So, so I think we're grappling for, for really solid information and for the facts, and the facts are changing. So what we, we have to stick with the things that I think everybody does know and has been known for, you know, since the plague, which was like, you know, 700 years ago, which is you have to quarantine. Our ancestors have known this for, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. If there is a serious illness, people should not be moving around from town to town, from house to house. They should be quarantined. Not new information. That one we know from history. All right. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest is Murray. My guest this morning, Andy Murray, one of the founders of eMedia, a corporation that deals with the intersection between electronic media and computers. And how do we rely, though, on science and data when we seem to have a White House who doesn't believe in it? Well, you know, you just heard of me take a big intake of breath. Um, we will also look back on this moment and say uh, and, and look at that very, very seriously. You know, the thing of it is that there is a lot that you can do in, in politics, let's say, and in the financial market. There is a lot that you can do by shifting perceptions. You know, and advertising does this. We know that certain things can change if you just say it loudly enough, right? If you re- we all know that if you repeat a non-fact for long enough, people will start to accept it as a fact. And if you want, for example, to influence the stock market, you, you can do that, both positively and negatively, right? You can tell people that things are great and, and, and everything is great, and we, we know that emotions and how people feel will change behavior and, and and allow the stock market to rise, for example. But there are some things that are just facts in the world and that that no amount of fist-pounding or declaring that it's the opposite is going to change it. And, uh, you know, global warming is one of them. However, global warming is something that happens over decades. So you can kind of tell people that it's not there and it'll, you know, that it'll go away. But because nobody has any facts to the opposite, they're not experiencing it in real life. Unfortunately, this virus is not something that you can you can declare is fixed and have people percept, people's perceptions change and say, oh, okay, it's fixed, because reality is going to catch up with us. And reality actually, you know, 
you can say things are great and have the stock market respond. The stock market has caught up with reality because people are realizing that this is true. It's not somebody saying the economy is great when it's bad, and I don't know, that's sort of debatable because you're over here and I'm over there, and my life feels pretty good, and if your life doesn't feel good, you know, this is not something that's debatable. People are going to start to be impacted in a personal way, and we all are impacted, many of us, in a personal way because some people, you know, the restaurant down the street is going to lose their business. I'm working from home. That's not a terrible thing to happen. I can't go see my my 92-year-old father. That's a more terrible thing to happen. But nobody in my direct circle is harmed yet. But when somebody is, and the data, as you correctly point out, Peter, facts are that that is going to happen, people get sad and they get angry, which are sort of two sides of the same emotional coin. And when they get sad or they get angry, they are going to realize, hey, why, why didn't we have testing in the United States? Why did the president say we're all going to be fine? That is palpably not true in my life. So reality in certain circumstances catches up with you. And that's what's happening right now in the United States all over the country. And it hasn't quite caught up with us yet. You know, the next, I've been advising people who are calling and asking because, because this is what the best epidemiologists in the country are saying. We don't have the data yet. We do not know what is going to happen because we did not have testing. And that is enormously frustrating. We are ramping up testing like nobody's business. In a week or 10 days from now, we will have a much better idea of what we are facing. And that's, we need it. If people are feeling like it's, it's 18 months of holding on and holding in, that, and that's a horrible number to try to get your head around, okay, get it. Let's give it another 10 days. Everybody, everybody's behavior needs to be as, as absolutely adherent to what our governors are saying. It's, it's humanly possible. And in, in 10 days, you'll be on the radio again, Peter, we'll all be listening to the news, and we will have a much better idea of what the world looks like and what we need to do then. But what if we fear that what the world is going to look like is going to be an episode of the Twilight Zone, nothing we want to see? Well, you know, not, there's nothing to fear but fear itself. This is a moment where we are called upon to be courageous. And we are going to have to summon our courage. Um, I think one of the wonderful things about the world today is that there are, you know, Governor Cuomo was talking about opening up more and more centers, uh, more and more access to psychological support, which is, I think, one of the things your question suggests, which is people are going to need psychological support to know how to handle the fear that they're facing. Because fear is an appropriate emotion in this moment. The, um, The desire to make fear go away is very human. Uh, It's like, you know, let's say say someone close to you dies. Forget about now. Uh, Two years ago, someone close to you dies. 
or it comes down with a very bad uh, disease, one of the first things, very human thing to do is to go into denial and want, because we don't, we, we want to make that reality go away. And that's, that's very, very human. And we all have experienced denial in different ways in our lives with different people. So, but that doesn't get us anywhere. Fear doesn't get us anywhere except that if people aren't behaving and adhering to the guidelines strictly, maybe a little bit of fear for those people would be a good wake-up call. For the rest of us, we can't be paralyzed by fear. And our grandparents who went into war were not paralyzed by fear. As, you know, as many people have joked, our, 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 our grandparents were called to serve in war. We're called to sit on the couch. So I think we can handle that. And if, if what you're, you're, you're being called to do is to sit on a couch, there's really nothing to be fearful of in that situation. But if your fear, your, your, let's say your wish to deny reality and to deny that fear you're thinking you have is causing you to go out and, and have a pickup basketball game with your friends, then you're not scared enough. Young people in particular, research shows, think they're going to live forever and, not, <laughs> and nothing can touch them. Those sound to me like the people who are having that pickup basketball game. And it can touch them, can it? Yeah, it's, it's a, it's, I think it's also very human when we're young to think that we are invincible. And it's probably true that over the last, let's say, 50 years, maybe, maybe, maybe it's closer to 70 years. Anyway, in the last 50, 50 75 years, Many, many, many people have lived in a world where science and medicine really can conquer anything that ails you. You know, it, my mother grew up at a time, my mother is 89, my father's 92. They grew up at a time where more where kids died, where, you know, there weren't, there weren't vaccines yet, where there were, you know, there was polio, where, where I mean, my mother contracted tuberculosis as a poor a child of Irish immigrants living in, in New York, on the east side of New York. So th that was real. And we live in a world where, you know, we try to close our eyes about, against those people who have serious diseases and say, well, that person died because they had cancer. And we know cancer still kills people. But most young people have not had the experience of a classmate when they were in fifth grade passing away. They just haven't because we haven't lived in that world. So not only is it a characteristic of the, of the young for thousands of years to think that they're invincible because they're feeling healthy and nothing touches them, that is even more true in the last 50 to 75 years where it really hasn't, where any disease that you had, the doctor could cure. We had treatments. We had everything. And uh, so I don't blame young people for feeling that way. I mean, I think, you know, those of, I'm in my 50s, and so I feel pretty invincible, too, because I'm young-ish, I'm healthy, but, uh, but we're facing something that we haven't, that's 
fundamentally new. At its core, it is new. Young people are going to be better off than the older people who are medically compromised. But it's going to be a wake-up call even for young people that when a new disease enters the population for which we don't have a vaccine and we don't have yet effective treatments, that it, it affects both young and old. Now, what we can do is, you've, I think everybody's heard, I was seeing uh, signs in New York, you know, uh, billboards in New York, flatten the curve. Flattening the curve means pushing out the timeline because what it's, what is terrific to think about is that there are going to be better treatments as we treat different dr- drugs to combat the virus, and there's going to be a vaccine. But the most optimistic projections are that that's a year away. Frightening. Certainly frightening. It, yeah, it is, it's, it is quite, uh, quite frightening. But it doesn't help in frightening situations to deny reality. You know, that doesn't really help anybody. So what we need to do is to move from the sense of panic we're having and fear and uh, denial. You know, I've been talking a lot about denial and how we just have to get through that phase. We have to get through that phase in order to get on to what's next. And acceptance is relief. A great friend of mine said that once, and I, I think it's true, when we can move into acceptance, these are, the, these are the facts, these are the realities, then we will all be better off because we'll be, everybody will be playing with the same deck. So we, we need to move from this sense of denial and fear and um, you know, some people are, you know, I was joking the other day that people seem to be going from denial to panic, sometimes five times a day with nothing in between, right? So we need to, that's maybe human, but it's not helpful. We need to get out of that cycle, and we will. We will, because people are going to adapt to the new normal. They're going to accept it in their lives, and, they're, and we're all going to come, get to a better emotional state. As a, you know, facts, the reality out there is going to go through whatever it goes through. But those of, those of us who are moving from panic to denial and panic to denial will eventually equalize and we'll get to a new normal and, and we'll be able to move into acceptance. Okay. Um, part of my panic and my wife's panic is we have a son who lives in New York. New York, the new epicenter of the disease in the United States. We want him to come home. He won't. We're scared for him. Well, that's, that is a very, um, I mean, that couldn't be more understandable uh, for, you know, anyone with a loved one who is in one of the epicenters. I'm speaking to you right now from the epicenter of New York. So here's the thing. Um, There are precautions that people can take if they are willing to do them and willingness to do them. I don't know how how old your son is, but willingness to do them, I'm going to be straight, involves a certain level of preliminary embarrassment because we're all social beings. We live in the world. So we are, as you noted, 
in the introduction, my husband and I are technologists, which means we are in the more hard science-y part of the you know, economy and in training. And we started to look at the information and the data very early on. So the reason I'm saying all this is that I'm going to share with you the procedures that I go through. And um, I have a friend, a, a business colleague who is working in, in another hard science area and working in a company that's uh, that's uh, epidemiological company that works on vaccines. And so therefore I have had my procedure validated by someone who is an epidemiologist. When I go out and walk the dog, I wear a mask and I wear gloves. I touch the elevator buttons only with my elbow. And I stay six feet apart from everybody, excepting my husband when we were in the apartment. When I, there is a bath towel with a spray bottle of Clorox, you know, Clorox cleanup. So it smells like Clorox, but it's a spray bottle. And that's outside my apartment door. And before I enter, I take off my shoes. I spray the bottoms of them with the Clorox. I take a Clorox wipe and I wipe down the leash and the leash handles and the doorknob and all of that. I even wipe down the cuffs of my coat. This is, uh, this is actually something that probably um, scientists say that we're, we're not really sure how or if the virus lives on fabric. It's more hard surfaces. So, but, you know, it's not hurting anything. So it feels, you know, when I first started to do this, it felt a little extreme. And as the as information's coming in, and I talked to my um, epidemiologist friend, these are the kinds of things that, for an individual living in an epicenter, <laughs> attempting to to remain free of the virus for as long as possible, that we need really need to be doing. The doorknobs, the door handles, the light switches, the telephone, your cell phone. Uh, getting back to computers, your keyboard, your mouse, all of these things need to be disinfected frequently, because, especially if anybody other than you is touching them. Certainly if there's somebody coming into your house, um, let's say, uh, you know, I, I think probably people should cancel appointments with their repairman, but if your refrigerator is on the fritz, and during this pandemic, you need your refrigerator. So let's say you have a repairman come in, wiping the floor from the, 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 the shoes that have touched your floor, very important things to be doing. Disinfecting constantly is very, very important. So that's how, you know, we, we, you survive in New York at the moment, taking it very seriously. When I'm in my apartment, everything's disinfected. We watch TV like normal. Everything's normal. And you're listening to 94WIPL Sports Radio. My guest, Hannah Murray, one of the founders of a company, that company being E. Where'd it go? <laughs> e Media. E Media. Thank you, Anna. You're welcome. Mushing together the electronic media and computers. My name's Peter Solomon, and we have a caller this morning. Let's say good morning to Deb. Good morning, Deb. You have a question or a comment? Hello. Hello. How are you? Yes. Uh, regarding you, Miss Murray, I just really called to compliment you. Of all the individuals I've heard speak, 
on this coronavirus predicament, the global predicament, and peace is written on it. You have the clearest, most helpful words that I've heard touching all aspects of it, from the scientific to the psychological, and you made me feel a little better. Uh, It's good to know that there's someone like you out there speaking, but I think that more people, more of the public needs to hear what you're saying. And, And the last thing is I hope that the professionals that will be put in place, if the psychological services come to pass, have the ability to communicate that you do. Thank you so much, Deb. What a what a lovely thought for for the day. Um, yes. I really appreciate it. No problem. That and that's all I wanted to say. I, I just, I mean, it's not just the information that matters; it's the demeanor with which it's communicated. So I thank you for that. Thank you, Deb. Thank you, Anna. You're welcome, Peter. My pleasure. And you're listening to Conversation. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning. Anna Murray, one of the founders of eMedia, a mixture of media and computers. Be a part of the discussion. Give us a call. It's 215-592-9494. 215-592-9494. Let us know what you're thinking. If you have a question or a comment, be a part of the discussion. Is media doing anything wrong? Yeah, probably. I mean, for one thing, I think that probably is a terrible answer. Our, the, the reason I answered probably is that our media is not just one thing right now. And we were, we were confronting that with regard to the, our election and election interference. And, uh, you know, for, for the listeners out there who may not you know, be in the trenches with regard to government regulations and and the FCC and media. Organizations like Facebook are not regulated as media companies and for business reasons have resisted regulations. You know, uh, Peter, because you're on the radio, that I can't run certain advertisements on the radio. I can't... um, put claims on a package of cornflakes, for example, that aren't vetted. I can't claim in an, in an advertisement on television or radio that my product is uh, healthy. So these, you know, these things uh, in, in the media that those of us who are old enough to have just only grown up with television, we know that advertising and messaging, et cetera, is regulated in a certain way. Facebook and other uh, sites like Facebook, social media sites, are not regulated as media. They are platforms. They're publishing platforms, and that's how they're regulated, which which I mean to say is not at all. So the problem there is that they are a blend, really, of broadcast, and publishing platform. When I post pictures of my adorable little dog on Facebook, which I do with regularity, uh, it's a publishing platform to me. But it is serving news and information and advertising. So, so for sure, if we're counting social media as part of media, there, the ability for social media sites to become a mechanism by which 
false information is distributed is a real problem, and that is not helping. So for sure, that part of media is, is really potentially quite problematic. And that's up to the, the companies that are running the large social media platforms because there aren't actually laws that are preventing this they are going to have to be enormously socially responsible right now and put a lot of money, they're sitting on a lot of money, put a lot of money into getting correct information out to people and suppressing incorrect information. Other media places, I think the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal have done a really terrific job in their reporting. I think they really have. They're getting information out to people. Not that some of it hasn't been incorrect based on the information that we have had available. I think people have been reporting for a long time, uh, since December, when the outbreak was pretty much in Wuhan, China, have been reporting, as you noted earlier in the show, that it affects older people sort of exclusively, that message was getting out. And we are now, the information is now changed to say that that is not true. Um, so reporting, we could do better at, as we report on this situation with enough disclaimers about what we do know to be factual and what we don't know to be factual and how things may change. So, you know, uh, I was listening to a podcast uh, a couple days ago. And I thought I was terrific the way the, um, the announcer on the podcast said, we are rec-, he said, I am recording this on Thursday at March 19th at 11 a.m. Pacific time. And I'm saying this because I don't know what events, when you're listening to this, I don't know what, how events are going to have overtaken us. So that, I thought, was a terrific responsible thing to say. Because if, you know, you pick up a podcast, gosh, you know, our, our world is really different. If I picked up a podcast, you know, it, certainly in the last six months ago, I wouldn't have expected things to be significantly different in a week from listening to that. I mean, sure, if you pick up one that's four years old, you might have the wrong president, right? But, you know, anyway, my point is that, that the news cycle is going to be changing and changing a lot. Um, I also think that we are trying newscasters, in particular on the broadcast media, want to put a cheerful face on things. And I understand that, uh, that tendency. Um, I think that when, we're, we're, when we are reporting and listening to information about the virus and how people need to change their behavior, I think we really need to make sure that we're delivering that with a certain amount of, of you know, sobering, uh, sobering tone and reality, and let's uplift people in different ways, as as you say, or and, and Deb, your caller said a minute ago, cycle access to psychological services, so we know uh, that we can be supported when we go into some dark places and fearful places. What do you do when you get fearful? Do you get fearful? Yes. Um, I do. Uh, one of the things uh, I, you know, I think one of the things that happens with with fear is that it comes during certain 
points of time. So my mother used to say when you wake up at three in the morning worrying about something, no one ever had a productive thought at three in the morning. <laughs> maybe maybe you're up producing, you're getting ready for your show, Peter, at three in the morning. But for most of us, when we wake up, wake up in the middle of the night, when was the last time you actually solved the problem at three in the morning where you got up? And you were worried about something, and you and like Thomas Edison, your Eureka, something happened in your brain. You said, "I have the solution." No, that is not what happens at three in the morning. What happens at three in the morning is that you get up and you fuss and you fuss over something, and it's dark outside, and your fears run away with you. So I was fortunate to have a mother who taught me this when I was a little girl. And if I wake up three in the morning and I'm fearful, I remind myself that no one ever had a productive thought at three in the morning and I should go back to sleep. So, so that's one of the things that I do when I'm fearful. Another thing is humor. Humor helps a lot. Um, there's no reason that we can't laugh during uh, a, a trying time. We should laugh during a trying time. So that really helps. Uh, distraction really helps. Read a book, uh, watch a great television show. And then the other thing that is so important for everyone is to stay in what is real today. Take action, shelter in place, stay at home. That's what you can do. So you need to do the important things. But then you need to remind yourself of what's real. And the only thing for me and you right now, Peter, that's real is the conversation we're having. You know, neither one of us is in the hospital. No one in my personal circle has been touched by the virus yet, but yet is in the future. So that's not real right now. What's real is that, you know, the sun is coming up here in New York and I'll walk my dog and I'll have breakfast like your listeners and there will be there'll be time enough to deal with a new reality when and if it arrives. Another great piece of advice, this came from the father of a friend of mine when I was a kid, is wait to worry. Right? What does that mean? It means there there may be a time to worry, right? But why don't you wait on that until you actually have something to worry about? So wait to worry is another way of saying stay in what's real, stay in the today. And However, wait to worry doesn't mean don't take action. There are things that everyone must do now, but your head doesn't have to be in that place of constant, constant fear where you can't, can hardly operate. And we're talking with Anna Murray. And we're talking about that intersection between electronic media and computers and COVID-19. Annie, you talked about um, a little bit, you hinted at scams being run on us, things we're being told that aren't to be believed. Are you seeing a lot of scams? Oh, gosh, yes. Um, you know, one of the things, so we, we've been talking a lot about, you know, things that are going on in our world because we can hardly talk about anything else. But one of the things that is happening is people are working from home, which is great. It's terrific. And it's saving parts of our entire economy. Our ability to work at home is, is really uh, – imagine 100 years ago, you, you know, you, 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 this, even 50 years ago, you, we didn't have this capacity. So that's wonderful. However, 
uh, fishing attempts and fishing just to review is when you get fishing with a ph is when you get an email and it appears to be from your friend george or mm, even worse it appears to be an alert from the cdc saying you know important covid information well it's not and you click on that email and now, you know, what happens next? Your computer is infected, and a week from now, you try to boot it up, and you get a message on the screen saying, pay me $300, or I'll destroy your data. So we're, in the cybersecurity community, we're noticing a huge uptick in phishing attempts and uh, uh, cyber attacks. Part of this is that people are working on their home computers, or they may have a personal computer at home. Some of them are taking their work computer at home. But you don't have, you know, Ken, the annoying IT guy, coming up to you and saying, you didn't change your password, or get, out, get off of that machine. I need to update your uh, antivirus. Or, or, you know, you're on physically in a cor corporation, and the corporations have their computers all deployed in a way with secure networks that might not exist in your house. I mean, how many people have a firewall in their house? Um, we do, but we're computer people. <laughs> so, so we are as te we're technologically more vulnerable in our uh, home working situations than we were. You, we were a week ago in our offices. If you work for a big company, they're deploying all of their IT resources to make sure that people, that the computers that people are working on at home have uh, a VPN running, virtual private networks, that they're using, you know, the, the corporate cloud, that everybody, you know, that they're enforcing the same good uh, practices that would be the case if they were in the office. Big companies are doing a, a really good job of that. Medium-sized companies and smaller companies that don't have big formal IT departments that are now working from home and calling up everybody and you know tracking their machines or whatever, those people are got, have got to be a little bit more self-service. And that means making sure that you have uh, up-to-date uh, software on your machine, making sure that you have secure connections when you're connecting to your corporate network, which ought to be enforced by your 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 IT firm, but now if you're a smaller company, maybe you need to call up your managed service provider and make sure that uh, you're doing the right things and instructing your people in the correct way. What's the worst case scenario we should be looking at? Well, I think we don't have that. I'm going to put a disclaimer in front of this and say we do not have the data yet and we will not know what scenario we are in for a week to 10 days because we will have when we have widespread testing we'll know what we're facing however it, it is uh, the Imperial College in London ran uh, which is uh, respected by the epidemiologists ran a study talking about the worst scenario. And I'll get to that in a minute. It's likely we are not in the worst scenario. It's likely we are in a better scenario because of the actions 
that the governors of the of the states that are hardest hit are are currently taking. And if we can get compliance, we we will I will feel more confident about that statement. So with that, we are looking at a year to 18 months. 2020 is is not going to be a great year. We may if if everybody behaves themselves appropriately we may be facing a time in the summer where things are feeling more under control. And what that means is when we have, again, when we have the data, we need testing to have the data. When we have the data, then there will be, we will know that in certain areas that the infection is under control and bits of life will start to get back to normal. Maybe a restaurant or two will be open. We're still probably not going to be having large gatherings. Sporting events are not coming back in 2020 and for the first half of 2021. Forget about it. There's not going to be a football season this year. Accept it and get over it. So things may seem a little better in the summer. And what we know from the 1918 pandemic is that in the fall, there was a huge spike and things came roaring back. But we are not in 1918. We are in 2020. So in 2020, in the fall, we are probably going to have more effective treatments against the virus. And we are going to be six months in closer towards a vaccine. And we are going to be feeling as if we have adapted to that, that life. So as we round into 2021, and we have a terrific and effective vaccine, life will start to get back to normal. However, if you have a vacation planned in June, you are probably not going on that vacation to Florida, China, wherever you've planned on going, because either travel will be restricted or you will be getting the message that you need to restrict your own behavior and your own self. What could happen Again, probably not because we're already taking our governors, uh, certainly Governor Cuomo in New York is learning from Italy and those places. Um, the, the bad scenario they just referred to from the report out of Great Britain is that it could be over 2 million Americans dying from this. That's what happens. That's what the data and the, tech, the, the scientific modeling shows if we do nothing. And that is four times the number of people who die from heart disease annually in this country, to put it in perspective. So we are not there. Your, your listeners shouldn't go all wrap themselves up in a fetal position because we are all, that is, that is the number if no action is taking place. So we are not there, uh, but every individual and in their lives needs to support the actions that, are, that the, our governors are requesting and going to be requiring us to take and, and monitor their own behavior so we take it very seriously because that is a very sobering number. Frightening. Um, certainly frightening. Who is the consumer for yours and Chris's ser- services? All kinds of different people, and I'll, I'll take you through it. We 
have a managed service division, which are people who take care of computers and servers and networks in metropolitan New York. So our customers there are medium-sized businesses. We also have a technology consulting and software development component. So companies that need customized software built or companies that have a, a system and they need someone to, uh, to help them redo their system to marshal resources and hire um, programmers and, and pick products. We do that as well that through our technology consulting arm. And we are privileged, to, our great client base in that area is both national and international. I always joke that um, what, what's my superpower? It's to run a project with 11 vendors and five time zones. You're an amazing woman, Anna Murray. Thank you, Peter. And I, I also want to note, I know we've had it, we, we must talk about the topic of the day, but I also want to note that I have a novel that's going to be released. I wrote a novel with a great, uh, funny tech heroine. It's kind of an interesting moment because uh, it, it is the, a novel for our times. I, I wrote it about the finance, the, it's set amidst the financial crisis of uh, 2008, and there's a natural disaster in there. So I happen to have written a novel that has a, a financial crisis and a natural disaster. And, uh, it, and its characters go through the, uh, demonstrate the, the humor and humanity and the heroism of New York during those times. So it's called Greedy Heart uh, by A.P. Murray, Greedy Heart, and it is out on April the 7th. And I hope that it entertains readers and inspires them and gets their minds uh, into a better place for and an entertained, uh, distracted place, perhaps, for what we're all you know, living through in the next uh, month or two. Well, certainly, Anna Murray, when it's time, make sure your publicist calls me about coming on to talk about Greedy Hearts. Absolutely. And I'd like to say thank you to Anna Murray for an enlightening, informative conversation this morning here on 94 WIP. Thank you, Anna. Thank you. My pleasure. And you're listening to Conversation. Stay tuned for WIP Sunday. If you can't, nothing left to say, but we'll talk again soon. And we're back here on 94 WIP as we ease on out of Conversation and ease on into WIP Sunday. And a lovely WIP Sunday it promises to be. And we're continuing to talk about you and your health care as we welcome Dr. Stephen Casson, author of the new book, The Slippery Slope of Healthcare. Try saying that three times. Slippery Slope of Healthcare. When bad thing why bad things happen to healthy people and how to avoid them. My name's Peter Solomon, WIP Sunday. Good morning, Dr. Stephen Casson. Hey, how you doing? I'm fine. It seems to me to be a strange time to talking about health care doing bad when we so desperately need health care right now and trying to do such good things. This is such a remarkably unusual time, unprecedented, whether it's medical care, cultural norms, finances, the economy. You wake up in the morning and you have absolutely no touchstones that we've all been used to in the United States. And when it comes to healthcare, Pennsylvania, you've done a great job. You closed down about a week ago. 
And uh, I wish the rest of the country would take that lesson to heart. You have 85 cases, but as long as you stay locked down in Philly, I think there's a better chance you're going to land up doing better than a lot of these states and municipalities where people are still going to the beach, where people are congregating in bars. It's absolutely stunning that this is happening in this context. Why do you think that is? It's a, it's, it's hard to know. I mean, they think that young kids have the feeling of immunity and immortality and the lack of understanding of this major public health mandate lock down. I'm not even sure I believe in social distancing, distancing as much as I do in social avoidance. Look, the United States is on its way to being Italy, where they currently have about 5,000 deaths and growing by hundreds every single day, rather than South Korea, that's only had 102 deaths. And what these countries did, all the countries that were successful in a relative sense, Singapore, South Korea, Hong Kong, and Taiwan, we're not doing one of them. These countries did contact tracing. Anyone who was COVID positive, the government would ruthlessly <laughs> seek out every contact they had and isolate them. And that means they tested everybody early, often, and throughout the entire society. We're not doing that either. People who are isolated, they're isolated quickly and rather severely. And there are consequences for people who don't cooperate. Everyone in the street, going into hotels, get fever checks. People stop cars on the highways to check everyone they can. And if you have a fever, you get tested. And if you get tested, you're locked down. The fact that we don't have free health care here in the United States makes it more difficult because people don't seek out care when they might need it. The other thing we're not doing, meaning we're going to be more like Italy than the South, than South Korea or Taiwan, is they've gone on a wartime footing. President Trump has talked about wartime footing. He's talked about himself as being a wartime president. I mean, let's not be political, but that's, well, I guess I will be. That's nonsense. There is no mass mobilization. The fact that we don't have respirators and masks or that they're so slow to come to the healthcare system and the absolute tragedy of not having testing. It's too late to do mass testing now. And even that, we're getting mixed messages. Right now, the CDC says it's too late for mass testing. The cat's out of the bag. Healthcare workers don't have the time or equipment to even draw your test from your nose and from your throat. And it wastes resources that are already scarce. But let's say we're starting late, and we are. If you do extraordinarily aggressive testing, and if they decide to do that, or if you lock down the society in total, like Italy and China, there's a chance of doing better than it looks like we're going to do. Italy's cases are still going up, but they've only been locked down for a couple of weeks. It took China, oh, about six or eight weeks before now they're hardly getting any new cases at all. And what's happening in the United States, and again, to be political, but you see it and it's affecting your medical care, is that the secrecy, the spin, this political infighting, and that took place in China originally when it went way out of control. 
It's happening now in Iran and Egypt. And sadly, we joined that club. So we're kind of in a real bind. The federal government really should be stepping up. The states have done a remarkable job. Some have, some haven't. Texas, Tennessee, Oklahoma, South Dakota, not so good. But many of the states, your state, ours, my state, and in New York, certainly Washington State, Illinois, terrific job. But you can't have disease in one location and expect it to be successful in all the areas where lockdown is complete. It's hard to know what to do with kids who are on the street who don't who are not obeying the public health rules and when to enforce this the way China did. We're saying in the United States, we can't do that. Okay, then we're going to find ourselves in trouble probably in about 10 days to two weeks in the sense of far more disease, far more death. You know, the idea of what exponential growth is is not often understood by the public, when something grows as a multiple of itself on a daily basis, for example, if I gave your listeners a choice between having a million bucks right now or having a penny today, double tomorrow, that double the next day, and doing that every day for 30 days, $5 million in 30 days. Mm. And if you're in a 31-day month, not $5 million, that one extra day means you make $10 million. That's what this kind of growth does. And right now, the estimates for how quickly the disease is doubling, I've seen it range between every three days to every six days. And so if something doubles every three to six days, in a few weeks, it's too late. I'm not sure whether it's too late now, but I still think that the United States should be in lockdown. Social distancing, at least, social avoidance, perhaps, and a rather severe attitude toward people who are not paying attention to the welfare of their fathers and mothers and grandparents and neighbors and even themselves, young people at considerable risk. My boy is in New York City, and I'm trying to get him supplied, and it's not easy because everything is in short supply. I actually bought him a motorcycle helmet because you can get those on Amazon. I shipped it to him. You put the helmet on, you close the lid, and you put a scarf around your face underneath it. That's better than nothing. It's, um, you know, there are just so many ways to get around these shortages that people will actually find themselves online for a couple of hours to buy bleach. You know, you don't need bleach. You can clean with soap and water. You can clean with borax. You can clean with lemon juice or vinegar. But, People are not investigating, and frankly, the media is not proposing alternatives that are easily obtained nowadays. So it's a difficult time, and it's just hard to know how it's all going to turn out. I find, again, turning political again, Trump is not wrong when it comes to hydroxychloroquine. He just phrases it, let's say, inelegantly. But hydroxychloroquine is being used throughout the globe, and I think the media here, at least some of the very liberal media, is doing a disservice to this agent. The thing about the United States, when it comes to medical, as well as other things, is an expression I, I use a lot in the book. 
perfection in the United States is clearly the enemy of the good. And in this emergency, sometimes good enough really is good enough. And right now, hydroxychloroquine has evidence behind it, some of it anecdotal, some of it experimental, and a history of 60 years of relative safety. There are certain people who shouldn't take it. You have heart disease. You have kidney or liver disease. The, the harms may be greater than the benefits. But hydroxychloroquine has some degree of promise, and it's being used extensively in Europe, Belgium, Netherlands, certainly China. And even though it's too soon to say whether it helps, on balance, in, in, in this kind of a situation where there's a, a, a public health emergency, if I had hydroxychloroquine, and by the way, I do, and I got sick, I'd really think about taking it uh, because it, you got a minute. I put this in the book, but I took it out at the last minute. Okay. Hydroxychloroquine is for arthritis, amongst other things. It's not used for malaria much anymore. But it's used pretty extensively for lupus and, and rheumatoid arthritis and inflammatory diseases. My doctor recommended hydroxychloroquine to me because I have arthritis. And I said to myself, arthritis, that's not going to kill me. And however rare it is that hydroxychloroquine, when taken over a long-term basis, can cause irreversible eye damage, I said, it's not worth it. The health utility for helping my arthritis was not a trade-off, even for the rarity, extreme rarity, of vision loss that's irreversible. So I said, no thanks. But for this, not to take to not get the disease, not to take if you get the disease and have just a little fever and body aches. But here, the health utility index, if for me, 71-year-old guy, to go ahead and not take it, if I'm beginning to feel short of breath, I take it because getting medical care is going to become increasingly difficult. It is a safe medication with the caveats I mentioned above. And that's part of what the United States is about. Clinical control of trials, we don't know. It's all anecdotal. And that's where in medical care today so much falls. And that's why we don't have medical kits. That's why we don't have diagnostic testing in the United States. Germany and the World Health Organization in January offered the United States the testing capability to do mass testing before this got out of hand. You know, in the United States, at the end of February, there are only a few dozen cases. Now there are thousands, of course. It's too late, perhaps, to do the mass testing that's needed, but we could have started earlier. But we turned it down. Why? Because we didn't think the tests were perfect. And the tests probably weren't perfect. But here we are now, six weeks later, losing that window, having tests put on the market that were far from perfect, and now we're only beginning to see them ramp up. So here in the quest for perfection, we land up with nothing. Good enough sometimes is, in the face of an emergency, good enough. I mean, we're going to be reaching this issue with the vaccine, too, because ultimately we need the vaccine. And they only started phase one trials in Seattle with about 50 people a few days ago, and they're saying 18 months. The good news, Peter, is that this vaccine went to human trials in, in several weeks, most vaccines take 20, 25, 30 months. 
So there's a proper urgency that got it to human trials. But now the question is, do we have 18 months to put it through those trials? And that's the other thing in the United States, where perfection is the enemy of good enough, in vaccines and in medications, first thing that's demanded beyond everything else in a vaccine or a medication or any intervention is safety. The safety is never absolute. It's a relative sense of safety. But if a medicine is safe in relationship to the harms that it, what it's treating offers that good balance, then the issue of efficacy is, of course, important. But when it comes to the vaccine, safety is paramount. And efficacy may be something that we hope for in the vaccine but can't guarantee. If that's the case, the vaccine may come out earlier. And that's a real dicey proposition. I'm not even sure how right that is. Because there's enough skepticism regarding vaccines in the United States today. Vaccines that are tried and true and lifesavers beyond any of our medical interventions nowadays. Vaccines are the cornerstone for public health. And if the public loses faith in a vaccine because we put out a vaccine, that's although safe, not as effective as we'd like it to be. That would be a huge issue of trust. But there are ways of determining if a vaccine is effective without going through the months and months and months of human trials, and it's called a surrogate finding. And your listeners are aware of surrogate findings in medicine. In cancer, they say the tumor half-life is slowed. The tumors shrink by half. Diabetes, your hemoglobin A1C drops. You take a statin and your cholesterol drops. Those are surrogate endpoints. In cancer, the endpoint is death. In diabetes, it's death or complications that risk death. In heart disease, the endpoint is death or heart attack or stroke. The surrogate endpoints are used because they're quicker to establish, and although they don't define the ultimate result that you want, they're used as substitutes. And for the vaccines, you can do some blood testing and the people now being in phase one studies, and you could use test tube studies to see if efficacy as a surrogate finding, the rise in antibodies that suggest the vaccine is going to protect people from the disease. Dicey stuff. I'm not sure what's right there. And I think we're going to be having that discussion in the United States probably in a few months because when it peaks, people, although hopefully won't panic, are going to be demanding emergency use or emergency use or use authorization. It's it's a hard call. I don't think hydroxychloroquine is a hard call. And I think sooner or later it's going to be in short supply if it's not now. Hydroxychloroquine in some places is combined with um azithromycin and your listeners probably know because they get z packs when they get a cold it's five days of an antibiotic those two in conjunction are being used around the world too for various reasons that make some sense and if your doctor uh upon inquiry feels that this is something that he or she agrees with then i think people who are made to understand the harms as well as the benefits can make their own decision rather than having it made from high by the CDC 
who tiptoes around rather than coming down hard on let's have a lockdown. The whole country is shut completely. We're going to throw trillions at this. If you keep tiptoeing up on it with what are we going to do for medications? What are we going to do for lockdown? What are we going to do for helping the huge swath of America that's going to be unemployed, no income coming in? It's time to do it about a week ago. So again, I've 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 spoken a lot, Peter. I'm sorry, but that's all right. It's it's a funny time, it's a dangerous time, and it's a time for action. Best on the federal level, but lacking that, some sort of state coordination that does what the president really should be doing, may yet do, but isn't doing now. And you, so li- I'm worried. As well, maybe we should be. And you're listening to WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon. We're talking with Dr. Stephen Casson. Um, he's got a new book, Slippery Soap of Healthcare. My, that's Peter, Dr. Bu- putting this book out now is so weird because the book is about overtesting and overtreatment. <laughs> and this could not be more polar opposite to what's going on now. Uh, but the book does have lessons, and I've, I, I canceled my book tour. I canceled all my book talks because of this. And for a three-year process of writing it, that was a big sacrifice, but, you know, you just got to do the right thing. But the book does talk about the fact about America, how we're far better at dealing with crises than preventing them, how the fact that sometimes it's really important to understand that no information sometimes is really better than bad information. And that goes into the fact in the book, we have entire chapters on science and how it plays such a remarkably tiny role in medical care <clears throat> relative to what people think it does. People follow their doctor's requests because they think science backs it. it really doesn't. And that's particularly important now when you hear on the news, this is evidence-based or it's not evidence-based, this is science, that's not science. Right now, you're hearing very little science. Vaccines will be science. Medications and development of new medications will be science. That's for scientists. Most doctors are not scientists, don't understand science, and don't read about the science, and don't understand it if they did. I don't. The statistical methods alone are enough to put me to sleep. All we have now is data and observation. And this, all this data and observation is all very nice, and I think it's incredibly important. But data is still dependent on interpreting it, who did it, where they did it, when they did it, who they did it to, why they did it, where it was reported. And so data itself has its own problems. The other thing about the, the book is I make a big, big push about the media and how the media can play such a significant role in medical care and certainly now in the coronavirus but it's important to be aware, and I make this clear in the book, about the variation in its quality and reliability, particularly commercials, particularly over-the-counter medications, and proposing prescription drugs to the public on air. And I think that's just that it'll never change, but I think the public should be really quite aware of it. And the other thing is that people expect too much care. But on the other hand, the book goes into the fact that we accept so much bad advice. Do we expect too much? But on the other hand, do we accept too much? 
And the other thing that the book goes into that plays out into the current crisis is that doctors have their own agendas. We have our own biases. We have our own politics. The other thing is that everyone says we're all in this together. I think as the weeks go on, I hope that turns out to be true. And around the edges, you'll see people who are outliers who are not working for the public benefit. But sometimes it's important to know that your doctor cannot always work just for your interest. They're hired by the government. They're hired by insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies. And a huge number of practices now have been bought out by companies, and they, and, or, or they work for hospitals. Each of these things, the industry, pharmaceuticals, device companies, hospitals, entrepreneur, entrepreneurial companies, they all have their own goals. And many of the times the goals mesh with your goals as a patient, but sometimes they don't. Doctors are, are under gag orders for certain things. They're under gag orders for prescription costs, gun control, industrial toxins, even birth control. And the other thing that the book goes into that makes it relevant, this is my pitch for the book. Sorry, Peter, but there you go. We should rethink the need for elective surgery. The first thing that was stopped by local, state, municipal governments was stopping elective care in the hospitals. And the reason it was stopped is because, by definition, elective care is not immediately necessary, and in many cases, not necessary at all. So people who have been scheduled for elective surgery come out at the other end of this crisis, they may say, maybe I don't need this. It was the first thing the government canceled, and maybe by definition, it's not that necessary. So I have several chapters on elective care and how dangerous it can be. And you're listening to WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon. Dr. Kasson, stay with us. Got to run a few commercials here. We'll be back in just a bit. And tell your smart speaker to play WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon, Dr. Stephen Kasson. His new book, The Slippery Slope of Healthcare, When Bad Things Happen to Healthy People, Patients, and How to Avoid Them. Doctor, you're really talking about more than those dumb things that happen. I remember reading about a case once where someone had an operation and they left a few sponges inside. That's not what you're talking about, is it? There are certain things in medical care that are unforgivable. They weren't as unforgivable when I started in practice because doctors were considered to be infallible and mistakes were shrugged off. But certain things are unforgivable, and the medical care industry and the administration of medical care has appropriately come down very, very, very hard on outlier physicians who ignore and don't obey the most basic precepts in, in healthcare delivery and who don't use the safety measures that are universally, universally acknowledged. There's very little that's universally acknowledged in medical care, but those few things that are have to be obeyed rather blindly. And that goes against, you know, 30 years ago when physicians thought they were independent actors. We're no longer independent actors. And so some care defects are unforgivable. But I think the important thing is even the best care delivered by the most conscientious, ethical physicians is fraught with errors, the lack of certainty, possibility rather than probability. And people 
to a degree, don't understand that diagnoses are provisional. Prognoses are usually more hope than certainty. And that one person given the same medication for the same disease as another person may have a completely different result. And that's the real push on the book is that people expect certain things from medicine. And when they're sick, understanding the fact that they may be harmed because they're sick and because medical care is imperfect. I think they have to understand that, and they do. It's an accepted medical practice that those who suffer from a disease might need to face some level of risk when they undergo a workup. But as my book goes into great detail on when people are given a disease or go off in the search for one, it's those healthy people who are affected the first, they benefit the least, and they're harmed the most. We call it health care because it really just should be for the healthy. And while it's hard to make healthy people well, it's very easy to make healthy people sick. And that's the push of the book. The American healthcare system is subsidized by its services to the healthy people. That's where the profit is. Medicine is a business. And like any business, we encourage people to become consumers by creating an emotionally fueled demand for things that are suddenly and urgently needed, created, diseases that don't exist, pre-diseases that you don't have, diseases whose definitions change overnight, and all of a sudden you go from healthy to have that big finger pointed at you saying you are a ticking time bomb, which is a ridiculous but often used expression. And that was the stimulus for writing the book. In 40 years of clinical practice, I've had the privilege of taking care of tens of thousands of people, thousands of people who have been asked to fight battles in wars that don't exist, people sent off to regain health that was never, ever lost, or found themselves in a grip of a new disease, pre-disease, an old disease has been redefined. And then when you have those kind of tests, if you have no particular risk of a heart attack, for example, Heart attacks are common. The second leading cause, some, some think it's the first leading cause of death in the United States. It's frightening to co- contemplate a heart attack. And if you have risk for it, as many of us do, we're overweight, we smoke, we have a family history, we're diabetic, we're hypertensive, then it's probably okay to go ahead and do tests to define that risk more clearly and take action to prevent it. But if you don't have any particular risk, Consumer Report did a study where they asked a few thousand people whether or not they had any cardiac testing, and and these people were not at risk. About 45% went for cardiac testing. None of them understood the risks, the harms, or the benefits. And only 1% even asked if that test could save their lives. And so marching off for a test or an intervention for a problem for which you don't have any particular risk, that's just a setup for false alarms. And that's what the slippery slope is all about. The slippery slope of healthcare is people make an innocent first step because the doctor says it's routine. Everybody does it. You're not going to get a mammogram, you're not going to get a PSA. What's that all about? 
So you trust your doctor. You think science is behind their recommendations, and you make that first step. You do it for questionable reasons, and then after that first step, for a test you didn't understand, didn't ask for, didn't agree to, really want or need, a result comes back and says, whoops, gee, this doesn't look quite right. And that's the beginning of the fall down the slippery slope. Every test after that becomes more important, more risky, more expensive, and that leads to overdiagnosis, overtesting, and overtreatment. And it's a huge problem because it's what brings healthy people down. And then when you have these tests and they show a problem that you never really had, then you'll end up with medications that you don't need, also that you never asked for, and that will never be stopped. And that's the problem with medical care in the sense for health care for the healthy. We go into a great amount of detail on screening technologies. People in the United States think screening is mandatory. It's the right thing to do. It's irresponsible not to be screened. That's simply not true. Screening is not for cancer prevention most of the time. Most of the time it's for cancer detection. And the same thing for heart disease and other diseases. It's not so much prevention as it is early detection. Some cancers can be prevented. Colon cancer can be prevented and cervical cancer can be prevented. And there is a tentative okay, a very weak okay for prostate, a stronger okay for mammograms, a very strong okay for colon cancer screening and cervical cancer screening. But I would tell you, even when these screening technologies save lives, the balance between the benefit they give and the harm they cause is razor thin, so much so that the government demands that patients have the benefit of what's called a shared decision session. And I've got money that says most of your listeners don't know what shared decisions are. Because they're hardly ever used. I don't, and I've had several procedures. Say again, I'm sorry, Peter? I don't know what a shared decision session is, and I've had several surgeries and procedures. Shared decision is a movement. It's common in the Commonwealth countries, Canada, Britain, and Australia, where a doctor cannot assume that their recommendation to a patient is what the patient needs without discussing it with the patient. Not just the risks and the harms, as well as the benefit. It's also, where is that patient in life? For example, a 40-year-old may not be a risk taker. And that 40-year-old has children, has a job, and an adverse outcome to a screening technology to prevent something that they're probably not going to get that's going to be decades into the future that doesn't benefit from diagnosis. And once diagnosed, doesn't benefit from treatment. That's taking a risk today for a problem you won't get probably you know, 30 years from now. And so the doctor has to put it that way. Here are the benefits. For prostate, a thousand men must do the PSA every year for 10 years to save one life. It's similar in mammograms. Does it save lives? Yes. And if that's all it did, well, then maybe thousands of people would take the test for no reason. But when it comes to PSAs and mammograms, the false positives are so prevalent. 50% in mammograms 
Sixty percent in prostate cancer diagnoses are overdiagnoses and false positives. If, if a woman has a mammogram, Peter, the chance of her actually having breast cancer is only ten percent. But a hundred percent of those women undergo more X-rays, more invasive tests. They're now on the slope. More risk, more expense, more anxiety. And most of the time, it turns out that they're 90% and they have nothing. And the 10% who do end up with cancer, there are certain types of breast cancer that really may not require any kind of therapy, just like in prostate cancer for men. It's not that people should avoid screening. It's recommended for prostate, a very weak recommendation. Mammograms, too colon cancer and cervical cancer. And it comes with the recommendation that there's a shared decision, that patients express their own tolerance for risk, must understand all the alternatives to screening, and then put into action their desires based on where they can agree with their physicians. Do you get a colonoscopy or do you get a stool test? Do you get an ultrasound mammogram, no mammogram, an MRI mammogram? There are choices everywhere you can look in medicine and alternatives to everything you can do. And doing nothing is not something most patients hear about. But doing nothing for many problems is a really good alternative that needs to be discussed with patients. And that's what shared decisions are all about. And that's, that's the last chapter in the book. And we talk about where patients get the materials so they can do shared decisions on their own to know the benefits, to know the harms to assess their own tolerance for risk by plugging in their personal values, by plugging in where they are in life, and then coming up with an answer that suits their particular needs. There's a lot to medicine, there are a lot to diseases, but there's a personal aspect that goes above whatever science there is and should, in conjunction with the doctor, be used as a tool for decision-making because healthy people becoming sick people is, again, if you're 45 years old, I'm, I'm sorry, if you're 85 years old and you die from prostate cancer, that's, that's very, very, very sad. 85-year-old, any 85-year-old from any disease and a cancer, that's sad. But if you're a 45-year-old trying to prevent that disease and you land up in trouble or worse, that's, that's tragedy. And it, it plays out in the United States on a regular basis. You're not going to hear much about it now in this current climate because it's under-diagnosis and under-testing that for the United States is completely weird. But the book is directed toward over-diagnosis, over-therapy. But again, some lessons that are relevant now. We talk about doctors, what motivates them. We talk about science. We talk about screening technologies. We talk about the media uh, and things like that. We also talk about perfection and how elusive it is and how certainty in medical care is elusive. There are very, very few things that are absolutely certain. It's called, as a, as a name, it's called the number needed to treat. It's worth remembering. If you ask your doctor who gives you a medication or wants to screen you or wants to do any diagnostic test, you can ask that doctor, what's the number needed to treat? That is, how many people have to do it so that one person benefits from it? Not every medication works for everyone. Hardly any medication works for all of us. All of them work for some of us. 
But any decision you make means that the uncertainty involved means that you should have a say in what's going on. And the say, at least in the book, are hundreds of resources that people can look to that when you bring them to the doctor and the doctor says, well, I don't know where you're getting that stuff, that doctor then becomes suspect because the resources that we have outlined in the book are unbiased, accepted as being valid, if not certain, and must be accepted by your doctor, not necessarily agreeing with it, but understanding it and saying, that's a good resource, let's think about it. And if your doctor discounts it, that's an issue you might have with your doctor. It's um, important to know that there's so much variability in what you can do, even cancer. I mean, the whole idea of a time bomb, a time bomb always explodes. And when the doctor says you're a ticking time bomb, that doctor should be eliminated from your care because there's no such thing as a time bomb. Nothing is certain. So the resources are needed be brought to bear. I mean, nowadays, and you hear it all the time, you should be your own advocate. It's become such a, a silly expression because you hear it in, 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 in commercials for insurance companies. Being your own advocate is not bringing your list of medications. It's not asking questions. Being your own advocate is not just asking the questions. It's knowing the answers. And then when the doctor gives you answers, then you can judge the doctor and judge the course you wish to take. And how do you know the answers before you ask the question? By doing research. And we call those industrial resources. Medical, industrial-grade, doctor-only resources that are available to patients, allows the patient to be a definitive player in his or her own care and be able to evaluate the doctor who either accepts it, discusses it with you, or rejects it. Because medical care is no science. There's a lot of person-to-person emotional play. And the little that we can do to increase our chances in the face of serious disease can be played out without too much effort at all by going to these doctor-only resources. They're really for the general public. Some of them are free. Some of them are a few bucks a year. And the best one is admittedly expensive. It's called UpToDate, and that's what it is. It's a doctor's encyclopedia. And if you want to get up to date today, just call your doctor and say, do me a favor. Would you send me an article from your UpToDate and give me a one-month free pass? And there you go. You have one month of access to the best, most encyclopedic medical resource throughout the world. It's by and large, easy to understand. Some topics are patient-oriented. Others have summaries and recommendations that are easy to read. Doctors don't want crazy statistics. They want facts. They want recommendations. They want the summary of the data. Up-to-date does that. You get five or six people in your neighborhood, you do a subscription for up-to-date, you share it. That's a health club. <laughs> yes, indeed. And, doctor- and Or get your doctor to give you a free pass. And if your doctor says, I don't have up-to-date, you got a problem. That doctor should have up to date. This MedPage Today, you can get that right now. Just go MedPage Today. You subscribe. It's free. It comes to your mailbox every day. It's a doctor's daily medical newspaper. 
it has a search engine so you can search for things. It keeps you up to date. If you have a chronic condition, I guarantee you once a week you're going to see something that's important to you. Diabetes, heart disease, congestive heart failure, lung disease, or cancer. I can almost guarantee that once a week you'll see an article that you'll find interesting and important. And your doctor will have to reckon with you as not being a difficult patient, but being a different patient. And that's what the book is all about. Partnering up, ignoring the hype, not asking for things that you shouldn't get, or if you want those things, at least to study them. It really doesn't take much time. Uh, you know, it takes less time to study your upcoming cancer surgery than it does planning your next vacation when this mess ends. <laughs> Dr. Kasson, got to run, run a few more commercials. We'll be back in just a bit. And we're backing into the home stretch with Dr. Stephen Kasson, author of The Slippery Slope of Healthcare. Why Bad Things Happen to Healthy Patients and How to Avoid Them. My name's Peter Solomon. Doctor, what do you want people to get, to think, to do after they finish the book? I'm sorry, Peter? What do you want people to think, to do, after they finish the book? I think that people who read the book will understand more about what medical care truly is, the role their doctors play, their role nurse practitioners play, and more importantly, even the role they should play, and use the resources that the book has to become not just an equal member of the team, but to manage your own care. I mean, so many people go on these roads toward feeling better. They don't know where the road starts. They don't know where it ends. And by using resources, you can pick your own road, and you can pick your own partner your own physician or nurse practitioner to work with you. And when you work in tandem and you become a partner in your care rather than just a recipient, there will be so much less regret when things don't go your way and so much more pride when things do. There's a lot to be thankful for in medical care in this country, a lot to be thankful for. But healthy people should remain healthy by being skeptical and question and research based on the lessons that I hope the book uh, offers in a form that hopefully is easily readable. I try even to use as much humor as possible. I know I haven't been a laugh riot on this, Peter, but uh, the book really attempts to be a little bit more readable. My first book was really very dense. It was directed toward the public. And it was a very serious affair. This one is a much more lighthearted tone, hopefully more readable. Uh, and I'm looking forward to seeing how it does. And when this virus horror ends, hopefully I can pick up my book tour and pick up my book talks. And in the meantime, the ability to be with you today and with the people of Philadelphia is a, is a real honor. And I appreciate the opportunity. My pleasure, sir. And I'd like to say thank you to Dr. Stephen Kasson. His new book, The Slippery Slope of Healthcare Why Bad Things Happen to Healthy People and How to Avoid Them. Thank you, sir. Good talking to you. And to you as well. And you've been listening to WIP, 94 WIP, WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon. Stay tuned for Sports Talk. My name's Peter Solomon. Two things left to say have a good day, and remember to wash your hands.